Welcome to the Policy Leadership Series podcast from Resources for the Future. In every episode, leading global decision makers speak to RFF President and CEO Richard Newell about big environmental and energy policy issues. In this episode, Richard speaks to United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. Their conversation took place on May 11th. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Richard. Looking forward to it. So, Scott, I'd like to begin with your career and experiences in the aviation industry. You started your career at the Pentagon after receiving a bachelor's degree from the U.S. Air Force Academy and a master's from George Washington University. Since then, you've held leadership roles across multiple major airline companies. So how have those experiences ultimately led to where you're at now? And how does that background help guide your strategic decisions at United? Well, my military background, I think, uh, was certainly important in my own formation and uh, development of leadership skill. Uh, It was a great place to learn. Working at the Pentagon was a huge formative experience for me. I was uh, fortunate to work in the the office of uh, Dr. Chu, one of the undersecretaries of defense, and just work with some brilliant people. Um, And I was 21 years old and got to see, you know, all this like really important stuff happening. I was sitting in the back of the room, uh, but got to hear, you know, the secretary of defense and secretary of the air force and others uh, talking about the issues of the day. And then when I left, uh, I wanted to do something with math. My graduate degree is in operations research. So wound up uh, kind of by happenstance in the aviation industry, uh, fell in love with it. It's a great industry. You know, it hasn't been a great industry for investors as Warren Buffett will tell you, but it's a great industry for, you know, it makes a difference. I mean, maybe we'll talk about today, but, you know, like our humanitarian response in the last year, what we're doing right now in India is one of those things that, that goes beyond just being a corporation that you can be proud of. Um, you know, it, it has employee issues, you know, it, it's at the center of kind of everything uh, that happens and, you know, is, is high profile. Um, it also gives you a platform, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, a platform to make a difference on issues that are bigger in the world, like sustainability or diversity, uh, that go far beyond what you would do as a corporation. So uh, it's been wonderful. Um, I've, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've never felt like I had a job. Um, I've had something that I was passionate about the whole time that I've uh, been working since I got out of the Air Force Academy, and I've been fortunate in that regard. Yeah, so you've been at United since 2016, uh, but have been CEO for about a year now. Um, and, you know, what a year it's been. Uh, you stepped into the role of CEO just before the pandemic uh, brought the global airline industry really to almost a grinding halt. So this has meant a massive shift in airline traffic, fleet operations, employment, institutional priorities. So tell us a bit about how the pandemic has affected your priorities as CEO and what steps you're taking to build an, you know, we'll come to kind of climate sustainability, but, you know, to build an economically sustainable future for the company and its operations. Yeah, this has been, um, you know, obviously the most transformative year in our history. And my, what a difference a year makes from where we were sitting a year ago, wondering if the world was ever going to be able to open back up or how long it would take and incredible uncertainty about vaccines and how long would they take? Would they even work? Um, and, you know, for the first couple of months after this started, our revenues were down 99%. Um, and, but the good the news of that is certainly at United, we used it to accelerate a decade's worth of change into a single year. Uh, and not only have we accomplished, I think, a decade's worth of change in a single year, we've been able to create buy-in from people. Um, and there's all kinds of things that I could talk about, about the culture and about technology and cost issues and things like that. But I think the most important from anyone listening today is the cultural change that really has changed how our 
frontline employees and all of us think and talk about the customer. For far too long, at every airline I've been at, and I was part of the leadership team, so you can blame me, spent way too much time talking about maybe the product on the airplane, but the physical airplane, or how do you get the plane off the gate on time, you know, operational metrics, and a lot of internally focused. Um, at United now, we spend tons of time talking about, always are talking about the customer and taking steps as much as anything, not just to empower our frontline employees, but to eliminating barriers and obstacles, things like eliminating change fees. Um, as, a, as a perfect example, we've got this program called Connection Saver, which now gives the employees the opportunity to hold an airplane um, when they want to wait for and need to wait and think the right thing to do is to wait for a connecting customer instead of slamming that door in their face. And those kinds of policy changes are enabling our front, convincing our frontline employees that when we say we want to do the right thing for the customer, we really mean it. For far too long, we had policies that kept them from doing it. And so I think this, the changes in how our customers are going to feel when they fly United, we use that term a lot. Like, how do people feel when they fly United? Uh, we're already seeing it in our data. We see it anecdotally. Every time I fly, customers tell me it's different um, and they can tell it. Uh, and keeping that progress on putting the customer front and center and really focusing on how we make people feel when they fly will probably be the biggest structural change um, in amongst a lot of others, but the biggest sort of turning point, I think, in the in the history of United. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about it, another uh, turning point, delve a little bit into United's um, institutional strategy, your, your ambitious goal to reach net zero emissions by, by mid-century. Um, you know, the announcements garnered a lot of attention. Uh, the airline industry is responsible for about 2% of the world's carbon emissions. Uh, and United is the first major airline to take such a commitment and really pave the way potentially for the industry as a whole to reduce its carbon footprint. Um, so specifically, you've committed to reducing United's carbon emissions by 100% by 2050. Um, and that's building, as I understand it, on a commitment made in 2018 uh, to reduce emissions by 50% by 2050. So really goes you know, well beyond that. And 50% by 2050 was already a, an ambitious goal. So can you speak a bit about how you reached the decision uh, to set this even more ambitious goal? Yeah. So first, I'd say this is an issue that I am personally passionate about, um, have followed intently. I'm kind of, a geek. I am a geek. I'm not kind of a geek. I am um, a science geek and, and have been following this, you know, since college, um, paying attention to it. It's been obvious for a long time that it was likely this was happening and then obvious for at least 25 years that it was happening. It is the biggest issue facing our generation. And, and even today, while there's a lot of talk about it, there are very few people that really understand some of the tipping points and the potentially just catastrophic and massive changes that can happen to the globe um, and to civilizations around the world uh, from the increase in carbon and, and from climate change. And many of those are tipping points that once you hit them, it would be tens of thousands of years before they could be reversed. Um, and so it really is the defining issue for our generation. And so this was always a passion of mine uh, and at United, so we just, we made the commitment and we figured out how we can get to not only 100% net zero, we called it something different than everyone else, 100% green, meaning we will get there without using the traditional carbon offsets that almost every company uses today. Uh, I mean, I think without question, we're the leader in global aviation, but the reality is United is a leading global company because of that commitment and because of, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more today, but Carbon offsets cannot be the answer. I'll wait to give you my passionate speech about why. Carbon offsets cannot be the solution. And if companies keep relying on carbon offsets, we will never solve 
this problem. And so we've committed to doing it, despite being in a hard to decarbonize industry, United has committed to getting to 100% green without using uh, the traditional carbon offsets. And that, that's probably the biggest thing that sets us apart from what anyone else in the world is doing. Yeah, we'll unpack this a bit because there's a number, of, as I understand, there's a number of different elements to your strategy. And really important because, you know, energy production and use is currently about uh, 80% of all U.S. greenhouse gases and 97% of carbon dioxide emissions. So advanced energy technologies, like the ones I'm sure we'll talk about, you do have a central role in decarbonization strategies. Um, at RFF, we have an advanced energy technologies project, which is quantifying the potential societal benefits of advances in technologies, you know, like geothermal power, carbon capture from gas power plants, advanced nuclear reactors, energy storage, and direct air capture uh, is one of the ones that we've been looking at, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to. Um, now, many of these technologies relate to decarbonization of the power sector, which is typically thought of as a building block of decarbonization for other sectors. But of course, air travel is part of the transportation sector. And it's, as you've said, it's a particularly challenging nut to crack in terms of decarbonization. So it's one thing to set a goal, of course, and another thing to set out how to implement and uh, plan for achieving that goal. So tell us a bit more about the specific strategies and technologies you're focused on to create a more sustainable fleet and meet the net zero target by 2050. Well, first, I'd say you had a really good list of the kinds of things, the technologies we need to be working on. Because while decarbonizing power, the grid, is seems more straightforward, there are a lot of those things like advanced nuclear and storage that we're not going to be able to do it unless we do those things. It's not as simple as build more solar and build more wind to the point that, that you made. But there are also then a whole segments of the economy that are going to be really hard. There's nothing on the drawing board that allows them to decarbonize. Aviation, the fuel density that we require is so high that we're not going to be able to power big airplanes flying long distances with either hydrogen or batteries because the weight of the batteries is just, or, or hydrogen is so much that the airplane can't take off in order to fly long distances with a lot of customers. So that's one example of an industry. Uh, you know, steel, concrete, examples of industries that are going to be hard to decarbonize. Um, food production, another example of an industry that's hard to decarbonize. And so we're never going to get all the way to zero. But what we can do to offset that is different than the traditional carbon offsets. So one is direct air capture and sequestration, which you mentioned. Um, and that is literally taking carbon out of the atmosphere or from somewhere um, and permanently burying it underground um, in the rocks where it's stored for tens of millions of years. Uh, dramatically different than planting trees, for example. It's permanent um, and it's scalable. We can grow it to as much as we need it to, to get down to the whole economy to be zero, to offset some of the other places where there is. The other thing we can do in aviation is sustainable fuels. Uh, and so while we need a liquid fuel, jet fuel, to fly airplanes, instead of having it come from oil, we can have it come from other sources. And United has been over 50% of the world's commitment to sustainable aviation fuels. We have a number of investments in companies. And what this really needs is really seed capital, startup capital, some government support, which we're um, actively uh, lobbying for. Uh, to support the industry and get it rolling. Because today, the problem with sustainable aviation fuels are they're just too expensive. Um, but much like wind and solar, you know, people 20 years ago said wind and solar could never compete with carbon for powering the grid. And today, it's cheaper to produce a megawatt with renewable energy than it is with carbon in most places or many places in the country. And the same can happen with sustainable fuels. And so we're using municipal solid waste or um, vegetable oils. The kinds of you know waste products um, that can be used to, to turn into fuel uh, that 
electric aircraft. We have an investment in uh, Archer Aviation, an electric aircraft company. Well, I said that they're not going to fly big airplanes long distances. They can do parts of the aviation uh, grid, particularly shorter haul, smaller markets. Uh, and then, of course, direct air capture and sequestration, which is not just an aviation issue. To me, that is a big part of the solution for the rest of the economy that can't be easily decarbonized. Yeah, so, so say a bit more, Scott, about um, the, you mentioned kind of a couple different kinds of uh, offsets, right? So talking about kind of traditional offsets, which is where um, a lot of activity has been historically. And I think you have voiced, you know, some maybe skepticism about that or as, as kind of a, a big long term solution. And then there's you know, direct air capture, which is also has a purpose of kind of compensating for emissions that are still emitted, yeah. but compensating and putting them underground. Say a little bit about how you all have thought at United about those two different kinds of offsets and, and what yeah. is driving you toward the direct air capture. Yeah. So to start with. What I call traditional carbon offsets today are mostly planting trees. I mean, if you go look at the projects, the Conservancy Fund or any of the other groups, they're mostly about planting trees. Now, if you dig into the details of those projects, which is really, 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 really hard to do because they're not very transparent, most of them are not incremental reduction in carbon. Most of them are things that were going to happen anyway. And in the interest of time, I won't go through some of the most egregious examples unless you ask me to, but it just makes my blood boil when I read some of these things that are carbon offsets and their projects, they're things that were happening anyway, and they're no difference. But even if all of them were incremental, mankind emits 4,000 times as much carbon as we did in the pre-industrial era. There is simply not room on the planet to plant 4,000 times as many trees. Uh, it cannot be the answer. It is a, even when they're good projects, they're a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the bucket relative to the 50 gigatons of carbon that we produce every year. And there's not room to plant them. And so carbon sequestration is different uh, because it is scalable. We could sequester 4,000 times as much carbon per year if we built enough plants um, and we're storing it permanently. It's also a tree will eventually die um, and release the carbon back into the atmosphere. Storing it underground is a permanent solution. And by the way, it is nature's normal solution for carbon. The normal carbon cycle of the globe before humans started producing carbon was carbon bound to the rocks and they dove back under the, the plate from plate tectonics and back into the mantle and then carbon gets released through a volcano. We've accelerated the process of putting it in the atmosphere. We need to accelerate the process of burying it back in the earth where it'll eventually go back into the mantle, just like it's done throughout history on, on the globe. So if I understand that right, it sounds like the issue of kind of verifying additionality and scalability and kind of permanence, those are all things that kind of led you to more of a kind of engineered solution to offsets in contrast to uh, the more traditional. They are. But scalability is the most important one because people will go debate you on the other ones. But there's no debate about the scalability. You can't plant 4,000 times as many trees. And so once you reach that conclusion, you know, you don't even have to worry about the validity and the other things. And the problem with it is, like, basically every company in the world that says they're going to get to net zero is doing it with carbon offsets. It's a check the box exercise. It's a marketing exercise as opposed to really changing what's happening for carbon around the globe. So let's uh, dig a little bit more into direct air capture. So uh, tell us about what you're actually doing with direct air capture. Is that, uh, are you in the innovation stage? Is it project development? Are you an investor? Are you a customer? How are you kind of getting engaged in direct air capture? Well, we're a junior partner with Occidental and 1.5, and they're really the leader in the project. We wanted to get involved because we think it's the right thing to do. I wanted to be able to talk about it like this. And because 
to me, I, I can't add up the 50 gigatons math without direct air capture. There's no, nothing on the drawing board that, get, that gets us there. Um, and so I've thought for many years that this was going to have to be the answer. And so we wanted to be a partner. Um, they're the ones doing the technology. They're great. Um, and they're committed to it. Uh, Vicki Hollow, the CEO of, of Occidental, is, is very committed to it. Um, it's scalable. But the point of this is, is to start investing now and figure out how to drive the economies of scale and drive down the cost curve so that this can become a real alternative for every corporation because it's just so much better um, than the traditional carbon offset programs. And, and so we wanted to be, you know, we're not the ones doing the technology. Um, we're a partner, um, but, you know, we can be an advocate um, and lend our voice to talking about this and, and trying to make a difference. Because our goal at United, because this really is an issue that I care about personally, is that we not only do the right thing for United, our employees, our customers, well, we actually have a platform, you know, we're a high profile brand where I hope we can make a bigger difference than just United Airlines. And we can help lead others or, or influence others to getting to, to ultimate solutions. And that's really, the, that's our goal, our desire for being a part of the Occidental 1.5 project. Each episode of RFS Policy Leadership Series podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This series provides thoughtful conversations with leading experts to better connect and inform our community on the latest environmental and economics issues. And you can help us by supporting RFF. You join us in our mission to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economics research and policy engagement. Learn more about contributing to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Let's turn a little bit to uh, sustainable aviation fuels. And if I remember correctly, sustainable aviation fuels was something that United was engaged in even before direct air capture um, for a few years now. So say a little bit about how you're getting engaged there. Is it similar to direct air capture in that, you know, you're investing in innovation there or is it more just as a customer? Say a bit about that. Yeah. So we're probably doing more to invest in innovation directly there because that really needs the technology for direct air capture and sequestration is, is relatively well known. It needs work on getting the economies of scale and getting it, driving it down the cost curve. But the basic process is well known. And the, I guess the same is true for sustainable aviation fuels, mostly Fisher Tropes. But while that process is known, figuring out how to take a ton of municipal solid waste, which is what one of our partners, Fulcrum Energy, does, and run it through a small factory, a small plant, uh, and get a few gallons of fuel on the other side out of that before it goes into the plant. Not only do we create fuel that comes from a renewable source, um, that that carbon that's now in the fuel would have gone into the landfill and become methane. Anybody that follows this, you know, methane leaks from from landfills, um, you know, and that's much more impactful, much worse for uh, the climate than carbon dioxide. And and so that's an example of the kind of sourcing. The, the challenge is we're going to have to source the carbon to create the fuel from a whole lot of different sources. Um, and so we need a large investment pool because municipal solid waste, it's great. There's municipal solid waste, every, but it's nowhere close to covering what the aviation industry would need in the United States. It's nowhere close. And so we're going to have to find things like agricultural waste. Industrial gases is one of the things that Lanza Tech is working on and others like that where we can find the feedstock to create the sustainable aviation fuel. So we're very involved in, and our focus is on, 
finding companies that are working on new, truly sustainable feedstock. Um, so not taking arable land out of production, not growing corn to turn it into fuel, um, but using real waste product to create fuel. So this is, gonna, this is a little bit down in the weeds, but um, when you think about the uh, carbon accounting around uh, sustainable aviation fuels, like the ones that you're investing in, are those net zero or do they, because you're removing the methane that would come out of the landfill, right? Then you're creating a fuel. And then when the fuel is combusted, there's carbon emissions from the combustion process. How does that stack up? Yeah, that is a cycle where you're taking something that is carbon today, turning it into a fuel. It does emit carbon, but then you're you're recreating. That, that one is a cycle. It's not like planting a tree to offset, but it's a direct cycle where the fuel is coming from a carbon emission and directly offsetting it, but it, it is an offset in that sense. So when it, when you think about um, investing in uh, like sustainable aviation fuels, direct air capture, is that kind of a near term strategy for United, or is that a long term strategy to be? Because that's ultimately you'd be kind of a customer normally for kind of those kind of things. Yeah, the near term strategy is for just driving a long term goal. In the near term, it's going to be the amount of sustainable fuel we're going to use is going to be a drop in the bucket. It's going to be less than one percent because it just doesn't exist today. The near-term strategy for us is to invest in the R&D and the infrastructure so that in the future, it can grow to a much larger level. Um, and in fact, we have this EcoSkies Alliance that partnership with uh, 10 of our, our large corporate accounts uh, who are going to buy sustainable aviation fuel. What we're doing with that is we're not just buying fuel, using that as seed money to invest in other companies and the infrastructure around creating more sustainable aviation fuel, because that's what we have to do. We have to grow it. We have to grow the infrastructure, you know, like this municipal solid waste idea, right? Right now there's two plants, um, but, you know, ultimately you can build a plant at every municipal solid waste site in the United States, um, if you can commercialize it and get it to work on a commercial scale. Um, But we've got to get it to work on a commercial scale. So we're still in the investment stage um, and using our money and our support and our commitment to buy the fuel um, as a way to drive investment in this space um, so that we can essentially use more feedstock to turn all the available feedstock into fuel. Yeah, that's great. So when you consider uh, so sustainable aviation fuels, direct air capture, and I guess there's other strategies like efficiency improvements through more efficient aircraft, more efficient routes. So how do these roughly stack up in terms of kind of shares of the solution set? Are, are they roughly equal or you know some other? Well, so near term, by far, the biggest thing we can do in the very short term, the most impactful, is improvement in efficiency. Um, We do that every year by buying new airplanes and we're buying new airplanes and they get more fuel efficient. But the biggest thing we can do is get to uh, the next generation aviation system. Today, we still fly highways in the sky. Anyone, hopefully all of you fly that are listening in, hopefully you'll be back to flying soon um, or already are, and you'll find it's a much better experience um, and you feel great once you do. a little non-paid advertisement, but um, you fly highways in the skies and you, you know, you fly across the country, you'll go up and you'll feel yourself turn here and turn there instead of flying a straight line. As an example, you know, we estimate that we could cut the fuel emissions by 10 to 15% by essentially using GPS. Think of it as using GPS to fly airplanes. And, and it's been frustrating and maddening. You have better use of GPS technology in your car than we do in aviation. And so we're working hard with the administration to try to get there on, on that. In the short term, like there's very few things that are as low-hanging fruit as reduce emissions from aviation by 10 to 15% from getting to next generation aviation, things that we have today. In the short term, that's going to be important. But in the long term, I'll call it 
new technology development, R&D, things like electric aircraft, and then split to 37.5% each on sustainable fuels. Um, hopefully, we'll get to a world where all of our fuel comes from sustainable sources, but that's still not 100% zero. Um, and then the rest, direct capture and sequestration, um, unless something new comes along that uh, that's better. But right now, I'd split it kind of like that. So um want to come back a little bit to uh, uh, carbon offsets. Uh, and I know historically United ha- and other airlines have had uh, kind of a program for voluntary carbon offsets where customers could purchase offsets for their own emissions, you know, through the kinds of traditional offsets, conserving forests and related sinks. Um, is that is that type of program still have a role to play in United's climate strategy or is, is that not around anymore? Well, for everything I said, we do have a program like that. <laughs> um, but I aspire to us ultimately replacing that with options for either sustainable fuels or uh, carbon sequestration, because those will be real difference makers. And I think of this as, again, it's not a marketing issue. You know, it's not about checking the box um, for us or for our customers. Um, people just don't understand it. Like once people understand, you know, sequestration versus traditional carbon offsets, most people could say, you know, kind of have the light bulb goes off and says, okay, we need to do something different. Um, and so we, we haven't done it yet, but ultimately I expect that our offset programs will be geared towards the real long-term solutions that are permanent, that are real, that will really make a difference, um, the kinds of things we advocate for. But um, and, and hopefully the whole world is going to evolve there. So uh, one uh, thing that you, I think you brought up a couple of times, but we haven't really delved into. So for, for many sectors of the economy, uh, the strategy is thought to be to decarbonize electricity and then electrify everything, right? And so question is, you know, I'm, what I'm hearing is that that is not a singular strategy for air travel, but what about electric aircraft? Is there any role for that to play there? Um, kind of help us understand that. So electric aircraft, I do think have a role to play. That's why we were a launch investor in Archer Aviation. Uh, but... The, the challenge for electric aircraft is the energy density of batteries is nowhere close to big enough, high enough uh, to power big airplanes flying long distance. Um, it's I think it's something like by weight, you know, one twentieth the energy density. So you would need to have twenty times as much weight of batteries, which means you simply can't fly big airplanes long distance. It's just physics; you can't do it. Um, but you can do small aircraft flying short distances. So Archer Aviation is our, our partner. And I think of that really as more of a helicopter replacement. Um, but, you know, think about Archer Aviation. You know, it does, it's a much quieter. It's environmentally friendly. I expect it's going to ultimately be safer because it has 12 rotors instead of one. And think about if you're in midtown Manhattan, you know, the ability to have multiple places you can fly from because it's safer. Maybe you don't have to go to a heliport anymore because it's safer and it's quieter. So there's all those objections to landing in, on buildings and such maybe go away. Um, you know, you get on a helicopter, um, you know, fly over to Newark in a quiet, environmentally friendly, cost-efficient way, you know, and have a premium service. Um, and that's kind of in the near term. But the other thing that we like about being invested in Archer is there's unknown possibilities that we haven't thought about yet. And by being invested with a technology leader, we can be on the forefront of new ideas and expanding it. And where can we go from here? Uh, But the real issue with batteries is energy density. And unless there's some, and there's nothing even on the drawing boards, I follow this stuff. There's nothing on the drawing boards of a theoretical technology that gets to kind of energy density that you would need to power big airplanes to fly long distance. 
So how do you think about the kind of distance for long haul transport, potentially with battery electric powered? Is this like 10 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles? No, what, you know, I think you could probably get up to a couple hundred miles, particularly on small airlines. But find a, a, an airplane, a, a 737 or an A320, a couple hundred miles with 150 people on board is not going to be feasible with batteries. But flying, you know, from a small city into a hub, you know, the kind of markets, the regional markets that we serve, that's potentially feasible down the road. Yeah, interesting. So if we uh, go back to the, the 2050 goal, yeah, that's 30 years from now, right? So how should people be thinking about United's net emissions and falling over time? If I just you know took it and you know divided equally, that'd be like 3% of current emissions each year going down. But how do you think about measuring achievement toward that long-term I goal? don't think that it'll go radically. And the reason is because we're still on the investment stage, particularly for sustainable fuels. So in the near term, we kind of get better every year by about one and a half percent efficiency, just fuel efficiency on airplanes and operational efficiency. So we're sort of per annum getting one and a half percent better each year. Then you get to the sustainable fuels, which I've already said are less than one percent right now. But we'll hit a point where it'll look like a, you know an exponential curve. Once you start to get these technologies commercialized, then that can grow rapidly. But in the next couple of years, it's not going to be growing. But you know, somewhere out three, four, five years from now it can grow rapidly to be a much higher percentage and you'll get a step function increase. And the same with direct air capture. Once the first direct air capture projects come online, you know, you can choose how much you want to essentially um, sequester uh, per year. And so you can make, you know, then, then it's an investment question of how much you're willing uh, to do. But we kind of need to hit those step functions of turning sustainable aviation fuel into a scalable product and getting the sequestration plans to be scalable as well. Yeah. So I want to turn a little bit to kind of broaden out, you know, more generally to the airline industry. So, you know, United is the first major airline to make, uh, you know, such an ambitious decarbonization goal. Uh, but of course, the, the ultimately we need, you know, the entire economy to decarbonize if we're going to you know, stabilize, uh, you know, concentrations of greenhouse gases. And so, you know, the hope would be that other airlines uh, would follow. So where do you see the industry going from here in terms of climate action? And do you see the industry changing to adapt to the climate crisis? You know, how so? And what are your hopes for the future for the entire industry? Well, I'm going to be an optimist. We have to solve this problem. So it is going to get solved. <laughs> um, it's either going to get solved voluntarily or, or solutions are going to be imposed uh, on us. Uh, I am very encouraged that, particularly as I talk to other airline CEOs around the globe, they're a whole lot closer to where I am. They're not quite as geeky um, as me about understanding all the details, Um but they, they genuinely want to get to the right answer. Um, and even here in the United States, there's been a change in the last, I would say even in the last six, six months um, of, of airline CEOs, you know, for whatever reason, either trying to do the right thing or because they view it as inevitable, um, starting to ask questions, get educated. And so I think we're on a really good path. I also think, you know, broader than just aviation, we're at this kind of unique moment in time where hopefully we'll solve it. But there's, you know, especially if you talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, there's a growing bipartisan sense of needing to solve. This is not a partisan issue in the way some issues are in Washington. Also, I would add, it's important that we solve this in a bipartisan way um, because that gives permanency to it. You know, it doesn't have to be all the Republicans, but, you know, if, if we can get to a bipartisan solution on climate change, companies will have the confidence to invest for the long term because these are long-term investments. These are 30-year decisions. And, and no one is going to make a 30-year decision 
that they think might change in a year and a half uh, or in three and a half years. Um, and so getting this to be bipartisan um, is like a hundred times better um, than, than something that is not bipartisan uh, because it'll create some permanence. And look, the other thing I would say is I, I read an article in National Geographic a couple of episodes ago about the um, Clean Air Act, uh, which is one of the most important pieces of legislation, tens of thousands of lives that say, but there's just a little blurb in it, like the most impactful thing to me, that passed, I think, in 1970. And it passed with 100% vote in the Senate and one no vote in the House. It wasn't exactly like that was a calm time of bipartisan relationship, Vietnam War, civil rights, you know, and they managed to do it. Please, let's find a bipartisan solution on climate change. Amen to that. Following on your you know, your recent net zero announcement, um, you announced a, I think it's a new EcoSkies Alliance program, which is with a group of other corporations. Tell us a little bit about that. Is that focused specifically on aviation fuels or is it broader than that? It is. And uh, it's a great partnership. Thank you to the 10 that have partnered with us. We've had some others, I believe, join since then. And, and anyone is welcome to join. And what we're doing is letting companies, you know, they pay extra for their flight. Essentially, they pay extra for the fuel because sustainable fuel is much more expensive today than traditional fuel. And so they pay that extra. And what we're doing at United is we are taking that and looking for other opportunities to invest in the R&D and the innovation and the commercialization. And we're, we're not just taking that to buy a gallon of fuel. I mean, it's the old analogy. We're not just using it to give a man a fish. We're trying to learn to fish um, and teach a man to fish, teach ourselves to fish. And so we're using that. So anyone that's listening, I would encourage you to email us and, and get involved in that program if you care. It's one of the most impactful ways because your dollar will go a lot farther by participating in that program because it's an investment dollar instead of just an OPEX spending dollar. Got it. So this sounds like, in some sense, kind of an expansion of your traditional offsets program, but focused on sustainable aviation. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, we've gotten uh, just about to the end of the session. So yeah, I'm going to um, start bringing things to a close. Really, my sincere thanks to you, Scott, for uh, a candid and a really insightful conversation. Well, thank you, Richard. You can probably tell that I'm passionate about it and appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about it because it is, it really is the most important issue for our generation to solve. And if we don't, my seven kids and all their grandkids are going to curse us someday and all of yours will as well. So uh, it's up to us to do it. That was Richard Newell, President and CEO of Resources for the Future, in conversation with United Airlines CEO, Scott Kirby. If you like what you heard, remember to like or favorite RFF's Policy Leadership Series podcast on your podcast platform of choice. We will release new episodes every month with leading environmental and energy policy decision makers. You also can find recordings from our Policy Leadership Series events at rff.org pls and receive updates about RFF's events and podcasts at rff.org subscribe. The live event was produced by Hilary Alvare, Libby Casey, Justine Sullivan, and Sarah Tung. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. RFF podcasts are managed by me, Elizabeth Wasson, and made possible by you, our listeners. You can contribute to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Thank you for joining us.